0: Good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here. I don't know if you've noticed that, but Joe likes football. (laughs) Pastor Joe, um, I I grew up uh, not too far from Baltimore, Maryland, a couple hours from Baltimore, Maryland, so I grew up a Baltimore Colts fan. Matter of fact, uh, for a while I actually worked uh, with Johnny Unitas' son, uh, and that's a quarterback for you, Pastor Joe. And I one of the things is, is that uh, when they moved to Indianapolis, I was so young that uh, I just uh, decided to stay a Colts fan. So uh, I'm going to be in the dunk tank too, wearing my Indianapolis Colts t-shirt. <laughs> so I just want to put that out for you. I don't think any of you can sink the Indianapolis Colts. You all can steal quarterbacks, but uh, um, so I'm going to lose half the church and get fired before the day's over, aren't I? I'm excited today, too, because we're starting, I'll tell you more about the Baltimore Colts and Indianapolis Colts as the months go on, because we have something really exciting planned for October that involved the Indianapolis Colts. I'm so excited. We'll share more about that later. Today, we're beginning a new series in uh, Philemon. Uh, it is, we're going to go for four weeks. I'm uh, thankful that you're here. If you are not involved in a small group, <clears throat> I hope that you'll do that before the day's out. We're going to have some of those small groups. I think maybe all of them are going to be there in the ministry fair because most of our small groups are going to be following the sermon series over the next four weeks. it would be a wonderful way for all of us just to get plugged in with a small group uh, so that you can go a little bit deeper in this series. Uh, Whether you do or whether you don't get involved in a small group, we have some study guides that are out by the Welcome Center uh, that uh, have some handouts that will help you uh, go through it. I pray that you'll Um, uh, pick one up and use it with your daily devotion, Uh, spend some time with it each day. You don't need to spend the whole time, you don't need to spend each day with all of it, but just at least a piece of it uh, as we all seek to go a little deeper into this book of Philemon. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to encourage you to turn uh, to the uh, book of Philemon, which is nestled there in the middle of your New Testament, uh, right before Hebrews. Uh, If you need to look at the table of contents, look at the table of contents. I generally preach from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, On the handout out by the Welcome Center, we actually have the full text of the whole book of Philemon, all 25 verses of it, uh, attached to that handout. But today I'm going to be reading from The Message, which is a hyper-contemporary language version. But if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along, just so if anything else, you can see the difference. But I just want to tell you that during the sermon, I'm going to be referencing back to the English Standard Version. Uh, but this uh, 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 version, the message is a powerful way of just hearing it in the language that we can probably really relate to. Up on the screen is an icon of Saint Onesimus, and over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you different icons and paintings of Onesimus. And in the last week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that is. So this is just to kind of tease you a little bit as we head toward uh, the end of uh, this series. So beginning in verse one of the only chapter of Philemon, I, Paul, am a prisoner for the sake of Christ, here with my brother Timothy. I write this letter to you, Philemon, my good friend and companion in this work, also to our sister Atphia and Archippus a real trooper, and to the church that meets in your house, God's best to you, Christ's blessings on you. Every time your name comes up in my prayers, I say, oh, thank you, God. I keep hearing of the love and faith you have for the Master Jesus, which brims over to other believers. And I keep praying that this faith we hold in common keeps showing up in the good things we do, and that people recognize Christ in all of it. Friend, you have no idea how good your love makes me feel, doubly so when I see your hospitality to fellow believers. In line with all this, I have a favor to ask of you. As Christ's ambassador and now a prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. While here in jail, I have become the father of a child, so to speak, And here he is, hand-carrying this letter, Onesimus. He was useless to you before. Now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, but it feels like I'm cutting off my right arm in doing so. I wanted in the worst way to keep him here as you stand in to help out while I'm in jail for the message. But I didn't want to do anything behind your back. Make you do a good deed that you hadn't willingly agreed to. Maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now for good, and no mere slave this time, but a true Christian brother. That's what he was to me. He'll be even more than that to you. So if you still consider me a comrade in arms, welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. This is my personal signature, Paul, and I stand behind it. Uh, I don't need to remind you, do I, that you owe your very life to me. Do this big favor, friend. You'll be doing it for Christ, but it will also do my heart good. I know you well enough to know you will. You'll probably go far beyond what I've written. And by the way, get a room ready for me. Because of your prayers, I fully expect to be your guest again. Epaphras, my cellmate in the cause of Christ, says hello. Also my co-workers, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. All the best to you from the Master, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word for God's people. May our hearts and minds be open to God's voice today. Amen. This week we're beginning a four-week series in Philemon, And today, we're also, as you've heard, kicking off our fall programming, and we're encouraging all of you to plug into a small group, even if it's just for the upcoming four weeks. Most of our small groups, will going to be studying Philemon more in depth as we seek to go deeper into our faith and walk with Jesus Christ. And the questions that the small groups will be considering are questions that hopefully will challenge us. And so I encourage you to really grapple with these questions. Grapple with what we're giving in addition to the message this morning as we seek to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Philemon is Paul's most personal letter written to a man named Philemon. And Philemon's slave, Onesimus, has run away. Even though it is a personal letter, it isn't a private letter, because Paul mentions multiple people as he introduces this letter in the same way that all letters of the ancient world would have been introduced. Here's what we can safely conclude from this letter as we try to get some background. First of all, Philemon is a wealthy man. Now, we know he's wealthy for a couple of reasons. First of all, well, he owns a slave. And a lot of times we think about slavery in the ancient world as being a rather prolific thing, and to some degree it was, but only the wealthy generally own slaves. We also know that Philemon is a wealthy man because his house is the place where the church meets, so we know that the house is big enough to accommodate that church gathering. We also know that Philemon lives in the city of Colossae. But perhaps most of all, what we really know is that Philemon is free. (laughs) Paul, and if you were listening and counting, says that he's in prison, repeatedly, in prison for the faith. Most likely Paul is in prison in the city of Ephesus when he writes this letter. Now, if you have your study Bibles with you, at the bottom, at the part that's not inspired, it's the part at the top that's inspired, but at the bottom in your notes, some of your study Bibles are going to say that Paul was in prison at Rome, and if that's what your study Bible says, it's wrong. Others of you, your study Bibles, are going to say that Paul is in Ephesus. If that's your study Bible, that one's right. Let me show you uh, very quickly, and this will be important as we go along, Looking at this screen over here, right there is Colossae, which is where Philemon lives. And right over here is Ephesus. Now, we know that Paul was in prison in lots of places in the ancient world. And even though the Bible doesn't specifically say that Paul was in prison in Ephesus, most all scholars say that at some point, Paul was in prison there, and probably around the year 52 AD. Now, remember that, because that's going to be important in the upcoming weeks. Now Onesimus is a slave and he has escaped from his master Philemon. Now if he was to try to get to somebody who could do him the most good, he would leave Colossae and go to Ephesus which is about 100 miles and would take about a week to get to if he was walking it by foot. If he was going to Rome, Rome is way over here. Now in that he is If he was trying to get to Rome, the way most people would have gotten to Rome, he would have gone to Ephesus, taken a boat over to Corinth from Corinth, taken another boat to Italy, and then walked up to Rome. That's about a 1,800-mile journey and would have taken up to a month to get, to get to. Since he was a slave, he probably didn't have the resources or the ability to get to a boat, which means he would have had to walk. So he would have walked all the way up here, across here, all the way up, and then back down. 2,800 miles, it would have taken him two months to get to Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were a slave and I were escaping and I needed to get to somebody who could do me the most good, going to Ephesus would be a lot quicker and a lot easier than going all the way over to Rome. The reason this is important, and we'll go more deeply into this in some of the upcoming sermons is that it really helps us date when Paul writes this letter of Philemon, that this is one of the first letters that Paul writes, somewhere around the year 52 A.D., which means this letter was written before he wrote Galatians or the book of Romans, which is considered the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. And if that is true, which I think it is, that means that this Experience that Paul has with Philemon. This issue that Paul is dealing with, that Philemon owns a slave, becomes the seed that helps to uh, uh, flesh out Paul's theology, Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. Because when we go back and we read the book of Galatians and we read the book of Romans, we see this theme of slavery coming up over and over again about Christ and with Christ. So pay attention to these things. Now in verse 2, Paul addresses this letter to Aphea as well as to Philemon and Archippus, a fellow soldier, and are you ready? To the whole church that meets in Philemon's house. And I don't know about you, but if somebody were sending me a letter about a spiritual issue that I had, the last thing I want is for all of you to hear that letter. that's the case here. What's happening here is that Paul assumes that there is a certain level of accountability that Philemon will have with the whole church about a personal issue. That is, he owns a slave. That's an interesting perspective about the role all of us as an assembly, as brothers and sisters who call this place our home, have with regard to to the spiritual faithfulness in our walk with Christ. And what's so amazing about this is is how Paul begins this portion of his letter. He begins it that that Philemon is not an evil person. Now look with me at verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you. Because I hear of your love and the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that the primary reason Paul is writing this letter to Philemon is is that he's a little bit hacked off about the idea that Philemon owns a slave. And he wants to send Onesimus back to Philemon as a brother. And he expects Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as property but as a brother in Christ. Now, even though we probably, I think, all would agree that that's Paul's overarching meaning here, there's also a meta-narrative, a bigger meaning that goes through all of Scripture, a bigger story, a story that accompanies every bit of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And I believe that that story is Jesus. It is that piece of the story that really unites all of Paul's assumptions here about how we relate to Christ, because from Paul's perspective, how you and I relate to Jesus Christ informs how you and I will relate to one another. Now, there should be, as followers of Jesus Christ, something different about our lives. There are marks in each of our lives that should set us apart from other people. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way of discerning and understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, scholars classify this book of Philemon as a narrative book. That is is that this is a story that is being told in order to convince someone of a point or a position, okay? Now, it's a significant way of how the Bible communicates, and it's a significant way how you and I communicate, if you stop and think about it. We tell stories, don't we? We engage on a personal level. It's important for us that those who stand before us, whether they be pastors or politicians or educators, that there be something about them that is relatable, some sense of commonality, some sense of being real or keeping it real. Now, as a civilization, known as the Western civilization in which you and I are in, and a culture, we have inherited a literature, a philosophy, and a method of wisdom from the Greeks and the Romans. Now, we call that rhetoric. Now, you've probably heard that word before. The problem is, is that when we've heard that word, we've heard it primarily from the lips of journalists. You know how it's normally presented on television, or in the newspaper, or online. We talk about a politician's rhetoric, or we dismiss what something uh, we dismiss something that someone says, and we just say, "Oh, that's just rhetoric." The problem with that is it carries this idea that there's some negativity attached to it, that, that, that it's not completely trustworthy, that it's, that it's just some sort of opinion that's couched in a way that will persuade us, even though the position may not be true. Now, here's the problem. That's not the classical definition of rhetoric. If you were to read ancient writings, they wouldn't understand the word rhetoric in the same way. For them, rhetoric is the use of logic Facts, truth, in order to prove a point. Now, the irony of today is that even though we are greatly influenced by that Greco-Roman approach to life, you and I are also influenced by another kind of philosophy. We call it the Judeo-Christian ethic or the Judeo-Christian philosophy. And there's lots of folks out there who like to resist that, that they think that they owe nothing to the Judeo-Christian heritage. But it, they're, they're wrong. Judeo-Cri- and probably we don't even want to say Judeo-Christian, because in many ways you could just say the Jewish understanding. Because as Christians, we've inherited both the ideas, the methods, and the stories of the Jewish people. The Judeo-Christian method, the Jewish method, is to use metaphors, to use allegories, to tell stories about our faith. If you've opened up your Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is full of stories. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jewish people don't understand raw logic or wisdom. You only need to read the book of Proverbs, and you can see that. But predominantly, they lean upon the narrative. They lean upon experiences. Now, we get this from the Greeks as well, and maybe it's because Greece is almost exactly midway between the hyper-intellect of the West and the more relatable personal relationships of the East, or specifically the Middle East. And so what we have been handed is both in a wonderful way. For those of you who remember your high school literature, think the Iliad and the Odyssey. Think of Plato's Republic. Stories put together with logic. Now, before you all fall asleep because you've just realized you've taken an hour or so to be in a philosophy class, let me just share with you this. It's important to remember that the Bible tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, that personal story, and our mind. Don't dismiss your intellect for only experiences and feelings. Don't dismiss feelings and emotions to solely be intellectual. Both of them are necessary. And both of them have influenced how you and I think, even if we don't know we've been influenced. Now, Paul is a perfect example of this. Paul understands how to do both exceptionally well. Think back to the book of Acts. Don't you remember when Paul went to Athens and argued with the great philosophers of that city? But yet, when Paul was arrested and taken before the throne of monarchs and kings and governors, how did he defend himself? With stories. With the stories of his life before he met Jesus. And the story of how his life has changed since he's met Jesus. You see, when Paul speaks to us, he speaks to both our minds as well as our hearts. Now what's this got to do with verses 4 through 7? Well, first of all, Philemon's focus, as Paul says, is on Jesus and the church. Now, Paul's purpose for this letter will come soon enough, and we're going to be focusing more on that in the sermons to come. But what does he do first? Now, Paul begins this letter, this letter of admonition, this letter of instruction, this letter of correction, with a compliment. I hear of your love, he writes, and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul honors Philemon's faith. Now, I'm pretty sure that you'll agree with me that Paul is not happy with Philemon. The man who is supposedly a Christian owns another human being. And though our detractors of our Christian faith on the outside would point out to us, well, doesn't the Bible accept slavery? Well, this kind of harkens back to what we said last week, that sometimes the Bible describes how things were, and other times the Bible prescribes how things ought to be. And although there is an appropriate and acceptable conversation to have about slavery from the book of Genesis all the way up through the end of the Old Testament, I challenge you to find one single verse in the New Testament where slavery is affirmed. Quite the opposite. It is clear that the New Testament's understanding of slavery is that it is an immoral, reprobate, heinous practice. The preacher, there were so many slaves back in Bible times, weren't there? Well, yes. But do you remember what your mother would say to you when you sought to defend something dumb that you had did? You'd say, but Johnny did it. And what would your mom say? If Johnny were going to jump off a bridge would you do it you see we're followers of jesus the call on our lives is to a higher standard not just my life as the preacher but all of our lives you and i are called to live differently while the world works to acquire wealth we're called to give it away While the world derides and insults their opponents, you and I are called to honor, to love, to respect even those who may call themselves our enemies. While the world strikes revenge on those who would do evil to another, you and I are called to turn the other cheek. (laughs) That is even... For those who are the most horrific, those whose lives have been prioritized by Hollywood, our political parties, and our popular culture, we are called not to judge, but to look for the good in people's lives. We are called to remind that, to to, to even the most horrific among us, the the most hateful, the, the most greedy, the most argumentative, the rudest person among us, you and I are called to remind them that they are made in the image of God. And that even in the worst of us, there is a glimmer of grace and mercy. Have you ever noticed, now I'm going to stop preaching now and start meddling. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that for most of us, We are only judgmental of those things with which we don't struggle. Have you ever noticed that the things that we are most gracious about in other people's lives are the things we struggle with? You see, Paul is so in line with the mind of God that he intentionally looks for and finds the marks in Philemon's life that prove he is made in the image of God. No one argues that Philemon is a big jerk for how he's living and how he is treating another human being. But Paul reminds him of his goodness. Paul reminds him of the beauty of who Philemon is in the image of God. How would that change the world? everybody says they want to change the world want things to be different i'm going to vote for this politician this year i want things to be different somebody needs to give more money to this but how would it look how would reflecting back to others their goodness change our relationships with them how would it change those who struggle with deep sin and brokenness in their life how would it change us Not only does Paul reflect that Philemon is capable of goodness and grace, he affirms that, I mean, there's a hammer getting ready to come down on Philemon here in just another verse or two. But until that hammer comes crashing down on Philemon, Paul wants to remind Philemon of his goodness, how he is an encouragement to others, to Paul himself as well as to all of the saints. What Paul wants Philemon to know is that even in the midst of his brokenness, even in the midst of the evil that he lives, his ministry makes a difference. Now, I may have already told you this experience in my life. Matter of fact, I think I have, and I'll probably do it again (laughs) lots of times. It's an experience I'm not really all that proud of. When I was a young preacher just out of seminary, I had a conflict in my first church with an elder of that church. Our disagreement was so intense that it was starting to impact the congregation. We could not stand each other. And folks started taking sides, just like all of us are prone to take sides Not because we agree or disagree with the point in question, but because of our relationship with the people who are in the midst of the conflict, right? So there were people who liked me. And because they liked me, they had disdain for that elder. But there were also people who liked that elder. And because of their loyalty to him, I started getting anonymous letters suggesting that I should resign. I kept those letters For over a decade. Kept them in a file that I had labeled Daisy Darius. Don't know if you know who Daisy Darius is. In demonology, Daisy Darius is considered the demon second in charge of hell. I just destroyed those letters just a few years ago. It's a situation I'm not that proud of. It got so bad that when it was his Sunday to serve at the table... I refused to receive communion until one day his six year old granddaughter came to church. And as I was standing on one side of the church, I saw her come in at the other door. And when she saw this elder, her grandfather, she shouted, Poppy! And she ran down the aisle and jumped into his arms. And I think I heard the Holy Spirit chuckling behind me because as I watched the two of them embrace, I was broken, utterly ashamed of myself, and I repented of my anger, and I repented of my sin. God had shown me that if that little girl could see this man's goodness, his love, his grace, then I should be able to see it too. And leave it to the providence of God. (laughs) Guess who was serving at the table that Sunday? And on that day, I received. You see, It wasn't all about him. It wasn't him that made communion valid. It wasn't our brokenness that defined who we are to each other or otherwise. But it was Christ who loved both of us enough to offer himself up as a sacrifice for our redemption and made both of us brothers of Jesus Christ and consequently uh, brothers with each other. What would your life be like if you and I could do that with those we view as our enemy? Father as we lived in rebellion of you you took the form of a servant of a slave and suffered the penalty of the cross as we reviled you and rebuked you and challenged you you said father forgive them for they know not what they do as we cast lots As we ridiculed your message of love, they laid your body in a tomb. And as we went home, believing that what we had thought was true, that darkness will always win, that anger will always be victorious, on the third day, you came back to life and rolled back the stone and in victory walked out and the world was changed. We humble ourselves before you, O God, and thank you that you saw who we could become through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've given that gift to us, Lord, and we seek today to leave here and give that same gift to the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.